Okay. Hi, everyone. Today, uh, we have Steve Loden from Sally May. He's a Senior Director of Cybersecurity Operations and Corporate Security. And so he focuses on managing perimeter security, endpoint protection, application security, vulnerability uh, management, and threat intelligence. So he's published in lots of security conferences. He spoke at many different venues. Um, he's got his master's in computer science from here at Purdue, where he was part of the Sirius program. Uh, so welcome, Steve, and I'll let you take it away. Thanks. So I am a uh, computer science master's uh, probably before many of you were born. So it's been a while. Um, I wanted to uh, do two things kind of give you an understanding of the cloud and what we just did as a company moving into the cloud. Um, before I do that, what do you guys think the cloud is? What's the cloud to you guys when you hear the cloud? Is it data centers? Okay, good. And the other major piece is besides someone else's computer, applications out there, right? So big applications. Uh, you guys run Facebook. They're in the cloud. Netflix, they own like half of Amazon's infrastructure, I think, to do what you guys do eight hours a day, watch Netflix, right? So the cloud is either a big application running or it's the infrastructure that you uh, formulate for your data center as aspects. Uh, we are a bank, um, so we're uh, a little bit more um, focused on where our assets are because A, we don't want to lose your money, and B, we don't want to lose data about you that the hackers are all trying to get. Who's, who's heard of a, a breach in the last five days? There's always one popping up, right? Anthem, who is headquartered in Indianapolis, um, they lost like 79 million records of people that have insurance through them, 79 million. Uh, they just a uh, couple of months ago actually put out arrest warrants for uh, two individuals um, from China that did that. So it's happening all the time. My job is to make sure that I protect the bubble around the data um, so that you don't lose your, uh, your information, your social security number, your account number, your credit card number, if we may have that. Um, about, um, so from our perspective, um, we're not the first one, the first bank to go all in the cloud. We're a fast follower, but we're finding out that um, being a fast follower still means that you got to set some, some standards and some policy and some activities that uh, our bank regulators weren't really readily aware of. Um, uh, a little bit about Sally Mae. Sally Mae, many of you might have heard our name in the past. We did federal student loan processing. Uh, in 2014, we split the company into a Sally Mae Bank and a Navient Federal Student Loan Processing. So if you have a, a student loan, um, today you might uh, have Navient servicing you, helping you uh, pay for the loan. That's not the company I work for. I work for Sally Mae. We're a bank. We have uh, retail banking on the internet, so we're an internet bank. Um, we also have You Promise for 529s. And um, as of this year, we um, launched a credit card. So there's three different credit cards you can get, um, a, a student card, a just recent grad card, and then a uh, lifer card with different rewards programs on it. So we're a bank. I say that a lot because it does mean a lot that we're a bank. Um, when we split the company in 2014, beforehand, we had all of our data center assets on-prem. On-prem means in our buildings. We had servers and racks and network gear and all that stuff in our, in our own offices. When we split the company, um, we went on the Sally Mae side. We took the advantage of splitting the company to basically get all new resources. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of value there. But all those new resources were in a managed data center. So we no longer had a data center in our building. We didn't have people dedicated to racking and stacking and wiring and updating and all that stuff. We paid somebody else to do that, manage data center. Uh, we spent the last um, six months of 2018 taking all of those assets in a data center 
um, managed by somebody else and putting them into the cloud. So we took all of our servers and moved them into the cloud. We're not the first bank to do that, but I think we're like the second. Um, one of the, from a security perspective, one of the main things that we gained by doing that when we moved from on-prem to managed is we got rid of legacy equipment. We had no mainframes, we had no mid-range AS400 servers, we had no old Windows 2000 servers, none of that legacy. From a security perspective, that reduced our uh, threat exposure and our attack surface. Everything is now up to date, patched, and not as vulnerable. So that was a big win for us. When we moved it to the cloud, we gained even further uh, management and security aspects that the cloud provides. Um, you don't hear about uh, Amazon getting hacked. You hear about companies in Amazon that misconfigured their, their setup getting hacked, but not really Amazon itself. Um, back to the bank, we're not a big bank. We're not Citibank or Chase or something like that. We're in the top 100. We do have banking assets. Um, we always have, if you want uh, a CD or um, something similar to make money, a money market account, we always have one of the best uh, rates. So again, we're a bank. And we, the, way, the reason why I say this is because we have application developers um, that want to be fast and don't necessarily want to take security into consideration. And so we have to remind them we are a bank. We don't want you to do programs that expose data, for example. Uh, when we made that shift, um, the, we, we basically uh, refactored our applications and reformulated uh, some of our environments. We took the U-Promise 529 program and they were on basically on-prem data assets. We didn't even move them to the cloud. We just basically moved them all to Salesforce, another third-party uh, cloud provider. So Salesforce now is in charge of the servers, the security, the encryption, all that. Um, we, we're not responsible for that anymore. We have lots of good contracts so that if something happens with Salesforce, uh, we have monetary re reward basis and SLAs on that. Um, when we made the move, we took virtual uh, machines, VMware images, in the managed data center and basically moved those over to Amazon, taking out some stuff and adding some other new stuff in. So it was a fairly easy move for us to take an image and put it over into, uh, into Amazon. Since we've finished that, um, we, that's called a lift and shift strategy. There's a couple of different ways that you can move your stuff. We did the take these assets and move them over here. The other asset is um, application refactoring. So you've got an app that sits on a server here, but let's change it up, modify it, and move it into the cloud. And oh, by the way, let's not use servers anymore. Let's use serverless infrastructure. We chose the fast route, which was lift and shift, not the longer-term application adjustment in that process. Um, but now that we've um, finished that, we are in our application modernization phase. So we'll take an app that has know, 45 microservices tied to it and try and move those services into serverless functions or containers. Um, so in, in uh, Amazon, we'll try to do a managed database service rather than Oracle or Microsoft SQL. Um, we'll try to use Lambda functions um, and step functions and glue and all these uh, Amazon services that seem to pop up uh, weekly. Um, we uh, have also in our organization uh, changed our model um, from a waterfall development model in our application development to an agile model. Um, who knows what agile means? You guys half and half here. So um, our waterfall model was basically do a bunch of changes behind the scenes and make a release once or twice a year into production. In this new agile model, it's make a quick change and move it to production. Make a quick change, move it into production. I think I've heard like 
Netflix does a thousand changes a day in their infrastructure. Um, and they do, let's only have this region test it. And let's have this region test something different. And AB and blue-green and are some of the terms that they use. But we're in the process of moving towards that faster release model in our app modernization. So um, it's quick. You can take a customer's request for a feature. Hey, can you add a green button instead of a red button? And instead of wait six months or a year before you roll that out, Pull it out tomorrow. Um, however, security is one of those things that, uh, as a bank, we have to make sure that we're not change that from a masked uh, social security number to just show the whole thing and publish it. Yeah, we can't let our application developers make mistakes like that. So we have to be a little cautious when we move into that. And DevSecOps is the term that they use, combining developers, security, and operations all into a single agile team. From our organization, um, we're a very mature security organization. If you take a look at other companies our size, um, uh, we basically are more mature than, than standard. Um, you can see that we have uh, lots of years of experience in the leadership. Um, and we, you can see the, the breakdown of how we have our organization. We combine physical security and information security into the same security organization. Um, again, on the maturity side, we are, again, very mature based on what we do. Our regulators, um, you guys probably have heard this, FDIC insured term if you uh, have money in a bank in the US. Um, our regulators are the FDIC. They come in and uh, uh, assess our IT and our security twice a year. Uh, we um, are trying to evaluate how good we're doing and they have a tool called the cyber assessment tool where they have a list of standards that go from you're the, um, you're the uh, local bank, you have one office and one branch to your city group. And your maturity has to differ. It, it really does. You're, if you're the one bank in the um, middle of Indiana, your requirements on how you drive security through your processes are a lot different than Citibank or Chase or JP Morgan. Those guys, since they're so big, since they have so many resources, they, um, they should be setting standards and driving the security industry as a whole for financial services. We find that we are more mature than the size of our company, and uh, our regulators generally like that. I'm um, just trying to give you a, a good idea on that. So I've kind of given, I believe at this time, a, um, a background on security, my team, we basically, as uh, was mentioned earlier, we're trying to protect the perimeter and the endpoints. If you guys um, have laptops, um, do you have antivirus on it? Uh, is there a uh, forensics tool on there in case you guys download malware and, and um, have issues? My team uh, manages that. They do the incident response in case there's um, uh, a malware that gets through our other protection mechanisms. We have a what's called a very large security stack that's taking all these appliances and solutions and putting them in a stack. In the on-prem data center, you used to have a rack that was just for security. Don't have that in the cloud, but we still have the same security solutions. And um, my team manages a lot of those. We, we think we're doing pretty well, but everybody has different measures and how you figure out whether you're doing well or not. So um, we have not as far as we know, lost any data. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Um, the other way that uh, attackers are hitting people is they'll send in an email like they're the CEO to the CFO and say, hey, uh, I'm busy. Can you please transfer money to this account here? We've, we've actively blocked that. We've never had any wire transfer um, being sent out that shouldn't have happened. We haven't had ransomware hit us. Um, you guys hear that quite frequently. 23 cities in Texas got hit with ransomware. Um, we don't believe that we've had any of our inside employee accounts compromised. The other thing is, 
that you see in a company is, uh, yeah, that, that guy had, um, he clicked a link and it downloaded bad software and the antivirus didn't fix it. So we've got to take his system and basically blow it away and reload the, the operating system. We only do that on 2,000 employees. We only do that once every other month. So all of those security tools that I talked about in the stack, they're doing a good enough job in preventing bad stuff from getting to the endpoint that we have to blow it away and reload it. So we think we're doing a pretty good job. That's Sally Mae, security. What questions do you guys have? I'm really interested in questions. Go. Okay, how hard of a challenge was it to convince the company to move into the cloud? Was it difficult? Excellent question. Um, so we spent approximately two years working with our regulators, the FDIC, to talk to them about the cloud. They, the traditional banking environment is still mainframes, it's still uh, on-prem data centers where they can walk in, they can see the physical security of your data center, they can see that your lights are blinking, that you're doing the right things. So it took us about two years to discuss with, the, with our regulators, FDIC, and do a lot of tipping our toes in the water to test it out. Um, it, it was not easy. And I, um, I don't know if you guys saw this in the news in the last uh, two, three weeks, but Capital One lost 106 million records. Capital One is one of the first ones to go largely into the cloud. They're not 100%, but they're largely in the cloud. And they go to conferences and talk all the time about how good a job they're doing. So if they can get hacked and lose data, I'm sure the next time our regulators come in in, oh, two months, they're going to ask a lot of questions. How can you not have Capital One happen to you? Um, so it's, it's a challenge on our side. Good, great question. Any other questions about Sally Mae? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you could give like an estimate, how often are you under attack? And can you say another <laughs> word besides constantly? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't say another word besides constant. But let me tell you, um, one of the, again, one of the benefits of moving from an on-prem managed data center into the cloud is our visibility as a security team went way up. We got a lot more logs, we got a lot more visibility on our infrastructure. We went from a billion events a day in our SIM, um, security information event management tool, to over two billion events a day just by moving our stuff into the cloud. So our visibility went way up. And of course, we're seeing uh, just uh, today, we had other conversations with other banks that this address in Iran is hitting us. You know, so we see it all the time. Um, we share information with other banks quite actively to um, tell when uh, there's a lot of probing or a lot of account takeover type activity that's happening. Um, but uh, definitely, we've seen a lot more, got a lot more visibility there. Good question. Um, as we were taking our move into the cloud, we set up what we called some golden rules. Here are the things that we want to make sure that we do as we move to the cloud. Some of these were discussions specifically with our regulators. Um, I, I didn't make up the titles that were there. I, I reused those from another organization, but the, the bullet items are what we did. So make systems harder to attack and harder to penetrate. What we did is implement a couple of uh, technologies, one called Software Defined Perimeter. Um, it's, pr it's pretty new. Um, it originated out of the defense network. So if you're in the um, military, you've got four or five different nations working together in a particular campaign. How do you share information and yet keep them out of your dark black networks? Software Defined Perimeter is one of the solutions that came out of that. Coca-Cola was one of the first companies to actually use it to protect their Coke formula. Yep. To get into a Coke formula, you have to go through a software-defined perimeter. It uses certificates and 
multi-factor authentication to protect access into um, resources like that. We're using that. Micro-segmentation, have you heard of that term before? On, on the network side, uh, you can have a big, huge network where everybody's attached and everybody can see everybody else. That's just the way it used to be in the 90s. Then this concept of segmentation happened. So you want to segment your bad, your uh, critical stuff, your crown jewels from your normal servers, from your users. You might have just a couple of segments there. In the new concept, micro-segmentation basically shrinks that bubble protecting your servers down to just a smaller bubble around the services that all communicate together. Within the bubble, they can all talk. Outside the bubble, you've got protections around it. firewalls, uh, in Amazon, security groups, you, you do it that way. What do you think um, the benefits are of shrinking that bubble down? Any ideas? Yep. You can control the access at a more granular level, so you can do like role-based access, and not everybody has access to everything. The um, I worked for a company that was uh, global prior to this, and I always said, why does somebody in sitting in our office in China have access to our financial servers in New Jersey? Why? That doesn't make any sense. They shouldn't have that access. When you put bubbles around things, then you can shrink that. Another one is, um, let's say that uh, a server gets hacked. And they start, once you get your uh, foothold in one server, you start looking at all the other stuff out there. If you can't see outside the bubble, then you can't see all the other stuff. So you're limiting what's called lateral movement. You can't move from server to server to server as easily. The other thing is if, um, if you get an application in a bubble compromised, you're just compromising that one application, not your entire environment. And that's called reducing the blast radius. So it, that blows up. It's really just a small little hand grenade, not a nuclear bomb where your entire company loses all data. Um, and I'm sure you guys have heard of S3 buckets being exposed. Somebody leaves their data out there and doesn't forgets that they did that, and somebody finds it, and it's all gone. We make sure that our S3 buckets that contain data are not public. Amazon finally, after many years, agreed to that should be the default. Uh, we use... Um, security benchmarks to do our configurations on our operating systems, on our environment. So we're trying to do just basic best practices on security as we built this. And we're using multi-factor authentication. So if you're trying to get into our Amazon account to spin up a new server, um, you have to have uh, multi-factor authentication. They get, we have hardware tokens if you need to do like root type activities. Uh, another category was make the systems harder to co-op or um, own. So we do a lot of encryption. Just by default, um, Amazon will encrypt their, the disks that go in servers. They'll encrypt S3 buckets. Um, we do a lot of key management and, and um, encryption on top of that. Make attacks harder to conceal. Back to the, the logging point I made earlier. We collect so many more logs now that hiding an attack is really difficult. Um, the, the one log that we see the most of is, a, is network traffic. So any network traffic coming in or out is logged and we see even just real pings up to I'm doing data transfers. We see all that information. For my team, that's great correlation information so that if we know there's an attack, we can see all the context around it. Um, we also use a tool on top of that that basically helps us make sure that we're not doing stupid stuff. Um, they're they're a, a cloud operations monitoring tool. Um, they'll tell you, did you misconfigure Amazon or did you misconfigure Azure um, in, in hundreds of different configuration items. So we use that to make sure that we're not, again, doing stupid stuff. We have had 
a developer try to spin up an S3 bu bucket, S3 bucket that was public. We have tools that auto remediate that. If you're going to try and spin up a public S3 bucket, we're going to knock that back down and delete it. Um, it was interesting. I, we were out at a recent AWS security event, and um, that's that's now standard by most of the financial services company. Discover Card does the same thing. <clears throat> Um, make effects of attacks and compromises easier to recover from. So we have a forensics tool on all of our servers, Linux, Windows. If there's a server or a workstation um, and you get attacked, we can see what happened contextually with tools. Also, uh, make sure that there's disaster recovery capability. You've got backups. Ransomware is the, the main driver for backups. Um, a lot of companies will pay money because their backups didn't work. <laughs> um, on the governance side, I, I know another company in Indianapolis that had hundreds of Amazon accounts and they didn't really know what they had or who owned them or who was paying for them. So we made sure that we, we have governance and control around standing up new accounts. You can't just... Um, under our name, go stand up a new account and spin up and spend money like it's crazy. Um, on the improve operations side, when you move to the cloud, it's the the new language is uh, infrastructure as code. So you have what's um, a pile of code that says spin up this server, uh, add this load balancer. Um, create these security groups, add these roles, and um, add this software. And that's, that's how you do stuff these days. It's not plug and play and a guy logging onto a system and downloading software, installing it, uh, changing a firewall. It's all infrastructure as code. That was interesting for us on the, on the security side because we're not really coders. That's our application development team, right? They do the coding. So that was one of our challenges that I'll talk about later. Uh, no special snowflakes. When you're, when you're, um, you got a special application that requires extra RAM or extra privileges, we tried really hard to basically say, yeah, no snowflakes. Follow this standard, this template. Um, if you want to spend more and have more CPU, that's fine. We can do that, but. Um, you have a standard operating system and it's, it's standard, standard, standard. The snowflakes are what causes trouble later on when you're trying to do application upgrades or infrastructure replacement or something. That's what causes legacy. When we made this move, there were some um, challenges that we learned about. Um, I'm definitely not going to go through these line by line, but um, uh, we learned that, uh, for example, to protect stuff in Amazon, you use what are called security groups. They're like a firewall. You say this system conducted this system on this port and this protocol. But they're not a real firewall. They don't do application-based firewalling. They don't do URL filtering. They don't do a sandbox for malware detection or anything like that. So we kind of gave up some features and functionality in this process. Um, we learned that the AWS marketplace where you can buy um, software or infrastructure related pieces. If you go to Amazon, they have a marketplace. Um, we would buy a firewall to help protect this. So we got a firewall. When we bought it, we thought it needed this big of a pipe, handle this bandwidth of traffic. And what we learned was if you don't plan very well and you don't over plan, it's, in some cases it's really hard to scale that. You have to turn it off and restart. And when you're in a production environment, any sort of change like that you don't like to do, especially in the cloud. Why is my application not working? How come I can't get access? Well, the server wasn't big enough for that 
it didn't auto auto scale. That's one of the, the nice things about the cloud in general is it auto scales. Marketplace didn't do the auto scaling for us. Uh, some surprises for us. In a firewall, if you've ever looked at a company enterprise-wide firewall, they probably have 3,000 to 10,000 rules in that firewall for real specific protections to try and um, limit who can access what and what ports and protocols. We learned that AWS, as we were trying to take our existing firewalls and take those rules and move them into Amazon, they have limits. You can only have, um, let me see what that was. You can only have five groups of security rules per interface, which is unbelievably low. And then each group can only have um, now 60 rules. So you're really limited on how you can do some of the firewalling. We learned that. We learned that there are workarounds, but it was a challenge for us. Um, one of the other things that was very challenging for us was a network IDS or IPS. So on the network IDS, IPS, if you um, have any concept of that, you basically take an appliance, you, you have your network come in, you plug it in, and then it goes through that box and it comes back out and goes through. So that network IDS, IPS sees if there's intrusion attacks and the detection system will tell somebody, the prevention system will block it. In Amazon, until um, just now, they didn't have that capability of sticking something in line. You don't have a data center where you can say, yeah, go take this box and plug it in. You just can't do that. So um, the reason why we have a requirement for IDS, IPS on the network is if you're doing credit card transactions, and you want to keep doing credit card transactions, you have to have a network IDS. That's the regulation. So we, um, we had a challenge on how to solve that problem. Can't just use what Amazon has. We had to do some um, tools on top of that. Um, Amazon just in the last couple weeks announced the beta for a, a service called AWS Mirror. So if you sign up for that, you can have your traffic that goes from point A to point B mirrored somewhere else so you can kind of do a, an intrusion detection system. Um, one of the other aspects, back to the discussion about our, our regulators, regulators and auditors take a checklist and they ask you a question, are you doing this? If so, how are you doing it? Give me evidence. When we moved to the cloud, they didn't have that checklist. They don't, they don't know what to ask us, are you doing this on? Um, we're one of the first banks, so there's not really that established. Well, in Amazon, you need to do the following, and we need to see the following reports. So we've been trying to figure out how best to provide the right answers to our regulators to get them comfortable, and that's been a challenge for us. We, um, we encountered resource issues when we, meaning people, when we tried to change our development model at the same time we were trying to move our infrastructure out of one data center into another. So the same people that would normally help um, architect a, a solution were the ones working on moving the data center. So we lost some business driven changes in our applications. We had to basically tell our business side, hey look, we know you want to improve our apps. We don't have the resources to do the migration and um, make business changes at the same time. It, it takes a lot of people to do that. Um, we were working with uh, third parties that on a normal environment they would ask for yeah, I need access to this, I need this app ID, I need this uh, network group that ha gives me access to this. In the cloud, a lot of these guys didn't know how to tell us the access they needed, so they would always say, well, just give me everything. 
Um, that for us is really hard. We, we work in a least privileged, role-based um, environment so that you only get what you need. Tell me what you need and I'll evaluate that and give it to you. When they said, yeah, just give me everything, um, for us that didn't go and that was causing problems. Um, one of the other lessons we learned is we needed a governance model around this. We needed to be able to, to take all of those requests that were coming in and figure out how to map that into Amazon, which is a lot different than an on-prem in the company environment. We had to figure out how to manage our costs. So supposedly, you can, make, you can save a lot of money by moving your assets into Amazon, but with the power of uh, having fast building assets that scale, you can also overspend. We had one non-production database that was huge because the application thought they needed more, I don't know, 96 CPUs on that thing. What? And then they never shut it off after they realized they didn't need that. So our cost increased for one month until we saw that and caught it. Um, again, the least privileges and separation of duty um, it has been a challenge for us and we uh, had to map out how to fit that into Amazon. Amazon has a different structure than your normal Active Directory, for example. Um, automation was a key piece. Again, writing code and doing things with a button click rather than having people do stuff um, was interesting for us. And then trying to work with our regulators and develop these controls that make them feel comfortable that we're doing the right thing. Um, one of the other challenges we had was finding the resources that knew what Amazon was and how to best configure infrastructure in Amazon or secure Amazon. That was really a challenge for us. We, um, we didn't have a lot of resources in Indianapolis. We didn't have a lot of resources in Indianapolis because there's not a lot of other Midwest companies doing stuff in the cloud. So we would um, look for contractors that were outside Indy to come in and work on a six month or a year project for us. The resumes looked really good, but in some cases we had people that um, wrote down really good stuff but didn't really have the experience that we were looking for, and that was a challenge. We learned that it wasn't just us having that issue. Um, <laughs> the last item. One of the things that happens quite frequently in this move to the cloud is, I'll get to that later. So um, we definitely hit this. Um, I can't do it now, I'll get to it later. In agile terms, that's called putting it on the backlog. It's not something you're gonna get done right now, we'll get to it later. Um, we did that way too often and um, we started to have to put those into a more official exception process that did tracking so that it didn't just sit in a backlog. Somebody actually had a deadline to get it done. Some of the changes that in this big long migration to the cloud process that we did, um, some of the interesting changes that affected us, we um, as I said, we talked to our regulators early. That was really good. Um, we also thought in the beginning, we have a .NET based application environment, so why don't we just move that to Amazon, or sorry, to Azure, because Microsoft.NET would fit well there. Pretty early on in the process, um, we were convinced that uh, AWS supports Azure assets and they're cheaper, so we switch from going to Azure to AWS. Different security tools, different environment. So it was a, a big change on the security team. Um, when we were halfway through, we changed who was actually gonna be our operations team. <laughs> so we thought we were gonna do it ourselves. It's the cloud, you don't need people to do that. You just push a button, right? Well, um, we also wanted to have a third party then do some of the 24 by seven type activities. And we changed that in the middle. And when you're trying to figure out who does what, is that the security team that does that or is that the operations team? It threw us into a loop on that. After we were done, um, I think we're changing where our logs go. So again, 
two billion events a day worth of logs, is that in one big central or distributed amongst the different Amazon accounts? We're still trying to figure out the best way to do that. And Amazon has changed their best practices approach on that as well. Uh, developers, they always want to try stuff new, spin up new things, play with new things. For us in a bank, we can't just give them data to play with because you wouldn't want your data sitting out there in, in a development environment, a sandbox. So for us, it's been a challenge to figure out what can we do in a sandbox? We want to make sure that they have the ability to try new things. On the other hand, we don't want to expose anything from the bank. So connectivity and um, what we let them do is, is still an ongoing challenge for us. Upcoming, who knows what the term immutability means? Immutability, maybe. So we're going to try to get to what are um, either serverless, where we don't have servers, or immutable servers. So immutability means basically you have an image of a server, it's running software, and it doesn't change. You don't let it change. From a security perspective, what that means is I can't have malware come in there, make modifications, and um, change the way the system's configured to put back doors in or something like that. I can't let that happen. That's great. From an operations perspective, the, uh, the concept of configurations changing on them, causing outages, causing issues, is something that the operations team has. If, they can't, if the server can't change, then those types of issues won't pop up. So we're pushing more for a server image if we have servers that just doesn't change. If it changes, blow it away and spin up a new one with that infrastructure as code. That's what we're going to try and get to. Um, I didn't really talk about tagging earlier, but uh, Amazon lets you put tags on, a, on an asset. So you could say it's running this application, the owner is this guy, his phone number is this, the email is this, the cost center that he's in or the department he's in is this. With that department number now tagged to everything, you can start to do really easy chargeback. So if that developer spins up a, a database that costs $1,000 a day, we can charge him, not the IT department. <laughs> so I think that's where we'll end up is taking those tags and doing chargebacks. Um, our approach has been crawl, walk, run. So when we first moved everything, we went to server in one data center, server in Amazon. We're going to try and get to serverless or containerize some of those things so we're less focused on the servers and keeping them patched and malware free and putting agents and all sorts of things on them to do that. If we can get out of that, that's great. Further in the future is this concept of multi-cloud. So you have a, an application and you can pick it up and move it from Amazon to Azure to Google, depending upon cost model or the um, resources or um, if Amazon goes down, Azure's still up. That's tough. It's really tough and it's not cheap. Um, but there's still some worry that what if Amazon decides they don't want to do servers anymore? They have 33% of the business right now. Um, and I think a lot of banks. <laughs> so our regulators are saying, got to have plan B. What's your plan B? Um, so we'll work on that. Uh, account strategy, um, the new way to do things, and it solves the micro-segmentation piece, is to take, instead of having uh, 15 different accounts in Amazon, you make it 150. So instead of having four or five applications in one account, you would then have an account for each application. So we're in the process of doing that. I know there's a, an automotive company that owns KBB or Edmunds. If you guys ever have a car and you want to see the price, you go to KBB, Kelly Blue Book. They have 800 Amazon accounts, 800. That adds a huge amount if you're trying to do all that manually, but they've put all this code around, spin up a new account, have all these things 
from a security perspective done, from an infrastructure perspective done, they can you know, hit a button and have a new account spin up. So, so the next option is to, for us to go into that um, l much larger account strategy. Take all our applications and make them into a single micro-segmented little bubble. We're working on that right now. <clears throat> um, if you're in the process, I know you guys probably aren't, but this is what you really don't want to hear. It's too hard. We hear that a lot in security. I could do that, but I don't have time. It's too hard. Or the, ah, oh, yeah, we'll get to that later. Or can I have an exception? We got, we got that a, a few times. And uh, we feel like in security we're always this way. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. Oh, shit, we just got hacked. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you do that? Um, okay, I'm, I'm done talking on the cloud. Before I go past that, what cloud questions, cloud infrastructure, cloud security questions do you guys have? Okay, all right. So um, I want to extend that out just a tish. Uh, there is what's called the Cloud Security Alliance. Who's heard of that before? Cloud Security Alliance? One guy, okay. So wait, I don't know, uh, t maybe 10 years ago, the Cloud Security Alliance was spun up. When people were worried about going into the cloud, moving their data center to the cloud, um, <laughs> the Cloud Security Alliance uh, was a national, now international organization that kind of puts together tools. If you want to compare Amazon to Microsoft to Google to IBM to Alibaba to um, Rackspace, they have different tools to assess what might meet your needs best. Um, they also, that SDP concept that I talked about, software-defined perimeter earlier, that came out of actually the Cloud Security Alliance as a, as a research project. So they work on cloud-related topics and security is a main focus. We have a, a regional chapter in the Ohio Valley that um, we have meetings but we also live stream some of those. So four meetings a year we live stream and it doesn't cost anything if you guys ever want to participate and learn about cloud security related topics. Um, URL and um, LinkedIn group if you want to just get on the mailing list type, type concept. Free cloud security. Um, I don't, am I giving you the slides? Do you want, uh, do you guys? Okay, all right. Uh, and that's how you reach me if you want to. Um, from a student perspective, uh, just last week my summer intern finished up, so I'm happy to, uh, Sally Mae does summer interns through the TechPoint extern program. Have you guys heard of that? Mm -hmm. TechPoint? All right, excellent. Um, we've had uh, quite a few Purdue um, grads at Sally Mae, in, or not grads, students, through the extern program working at Sally Mae in different application development and um, security roles. He just finished up. Um, I uh, just talked with an a, uh, IU informatics grad who's now in what's called the cyber security program at 1150 Academy. Have you guys heard of 1150 Academy yet? Um, they're kind of a um, IT application development training, and now they just started a security training um, where you can basically take and learn and get certifications. On the app dev side, you can do .NET and some other language and basically come out of that class ready to, to work full time. On the security side, you can get a, an A-plus cert and a network cert and a security cert as part of the, the training class. So you can come out ready to go, certified, um, with the right experience. That's another thing that, uh, that I'm focusing on is uh, working with those guys to develop their program, get security uh, rolled out to uh, individuals. Okay, last, any questions? Um, I actually have Hit your button. <laughs> okay. 
So uh, my question is, uh, uh, you said uh, your developers are following the agile life cycle. So yep. uh, during uh, every sprint or, or say, small pushes to uh, the environment before production, just a small testing their changes, uh, would you have a, a, a security check, say, during their build cycle, or would you train the developers to um, be security compliant in their application changes? Good question. So in the waterfall model, we had them take an annual training course on um, coding security, no buffer overflows, no SQL injection, you know, the OWASP top 10 type things. In the agile mode, um, we're trying to integrate tools into the CI/CD pipeline that allow us to stop the development delivery if there are security issues. So we'll do source code checking um, with an application. We will do infrastructure checking um, with tools. And if they build a server, we'll do vulnerability and security configuration checking before that gets pushed to production. So it's part of the, the continuous integration, continuous development process. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so are there any like security drawbacks for instant money transfers between banks? So the instant money transfer um, typically runs on a, a platform called Swift. Um, there were um, instances where Swift actually got hacked. Um, I believe in the East, Malaysia or Singapore, one of the banks lost $80 million by uh, Swift transfers. Yeah, that was a advanced persistent threat from North Korea, and they targeted Swift <laughs> and timed it with yes. the rest of the banks for when people weren't there. Yes, exactly. So they're able to transfer that money out. I think they only made nine million out of the eighty million, but that's still a pretty large profit. Yeah, they got some of it back. That's why I block every single packet that comes from North Korea. <laughs> it doesn't come in. Um, actually, it, there's the. Um, the acronym is OFAC, O-F-A-C, that defines what the, the bad countries are out there. And we're required by our regulators to block money transfers or activities with those countries. So I block every packet coming from um, Somalia and Yemen and North Korea and Iran and Iraq. Um, so it makes it easier on my side. It's less attacks that make it through. Now if I could just do the same with Russia and China, that would really help. <laughs> Surprisingly, Netherlands has been really bad at attacking us lately. Cheap VPNs in Netherlands. He's right. <laughs> Cheap VPNs. Uh, France has a OV, uh, OVH, OHV, as a hosting provider, and it seems like they take all the bad guys. Um, yeah, I could, I could talk for a long time about uh, attacks. Okay, next question. All right. So you guys have my contact information. Do you ever have any follow-ups or, or anything? I don't live too far away. Thanks.